0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and explore the connections made between the far-right militias and Trump's call on January 6th for the mob to march on the Capitol and fight like hell that were made in the first hearings of the House Select Committee on Thursday and speak with Joseph Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, and an expert on conservatism, social movements, the GOP, race, and elections. He is the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race, and the New Right Wing, Politics of Precarity. He has an article at the Washington Post, the homegrown version of replacement theory adopted by the GOP, and we'll discuss his article at joelowns.org, Enrico Tario's Winter Palace, and how Fox News, in counter-programming against all the other networks carrying Thursday's hearing, did not take commercial breaks so as to keep their audience insulated from the truth. Then we'll look into what might emerge from the next hearing on Monday evening, which will investigate Trump's seven-point plan for his coup against American democracy, and look into whether the activities in the Willard Hotel Room were coordinated with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Joining us is Shane Burley, writer and filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. And his work has appeared in Al Jazeera, The Baffler, Jacobin, In These Times and other publications. And he has an article at Real News, Abortion Funds, Telehealth Care, Biohack Medicines, Crisis Planning for Post-Roe America. Then finally, with Putin claiming the mantle of Peter the Great and calling on an historic quest, quote, to return and fortify Russia's lost lands, we will speak with Stephen Wertheim a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow, The World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and we will discuss his article at The Atlantic, the one key word Biden needs to invoke on Ukraine. He should call it a fight not for democracy, but for sovereignty. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as five dollars a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Joseph Lowndes, is a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and an expert on conservatism, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has an article at joelowndes.org, Enrico Tarrio's Winter Palace, and an article at the Washington Post, the homegrown version of replacement theory adopted by the GOP. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joseph Lowndes.
1: Thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the first hearing of the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th tied in the activities of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers via a British documentarian who was one of the two witnesses that they presented. And it seemed as though the case that they were making was that essentially the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were the vanguard. They were the reconnaissance team. They went to the Capitol early, starting at 10 a.m., reconnoitred the place, found the weak spots, and then waited for Trump to announce to the crowd that they should march on the Capitol and fight like hell. So do you think they made that case?
1: Yeah, I think they made the case very um, surprisingly strongly, more so than uh, I would have thought. I mean, partly the you know the the video footage, all of it new, uh, was so arresting, um, and um, you know just really conveyed the, the kind of the chaos and the violence and the aggression, particularly of of uh, leaders of the January 6th insurrection. But I think one of the things that's most important that they did was to continually fold in what was happening at the White House and fold in uh, Trump's own uh, kind, you know kind of coup attempt here uh, with these actions out uh, you know on the Capitol, so that it's not just January sixth, you know, far right thugs and their followers out there, you know, creating mayhem. But that this was part and parcel of a larger strategy, uh, and I think that you know targeting targeting the elites who were involved in this, whether it's Trump himself or John Eastman or members of the House, uh, is really critical for uh, making ma- I think making the case to a broader public, and also for really holding accountable the people who who need to be.
0: Well, that's apparently what's going to happen on the second hearing on Monday. They're going to go through. Trump's seven-point plan and all of the machinations that went on planning this coup but to the extent that the Proud Boys were the kind of reconnaissance, they found the weak spots, they were ready to go they were there, they had arms by the way stashed in Virginia so there's a, a real possibility that there may be a lot more to this story in the sense that the plan was to capture Nancy Pelosi and AOC and others And frankly, it's not a big stretch to imagine that given the brutality that was meted out against police officers, and of course you had one of the police officers testify uh, at the first hearing, um, the brutality with which they attacked police officers, you can imagine what they would have done had they got their hands on AOC. Do you think that's a reasonable supposition?
1: Yes, I think it is. I mean, I, I want to distinguish between you know these people who, wa- who were in the vanguard, oath keepers and proud boys uh, in particular, uh, from you know kind of the, the the broader crowd that was there, many of whom, um, you know, all of whom presumably shared this this idea that. Um, Trump was denied a legitimate election, uh, but most of them were not affiliated with any particular, you know, right-wing organization or far-right organization. But they were w- available to be swept into that moment. And as we know, you know, crowd behavior can um, get pretty not just riotous, but but um, uh, but pretty ugly and violent, kind of quickly under the right circumstances. So in a way, I think that you know, the, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. Had a good sense that they were going to be able to lead a broader group of people, unaffiliated people, into um, much more dire actions. Uh, I mean, whether or not whether or not they had you know elaborate plans that they could have carried out in terms of you know kidnappings or holding people, I, I, you know, I just don't know. But but certainly they understood very clearly their role as kind of you know a, a, a kind of the link between. Uh, the, the coup attempt at the top and uh, kind of, uh, you know, angry, you know, Republicans who were there at the demonstration.
0: But the bottom line, surely, though, uh, Joseph Lowndes, is that Trump provided the mob, did he not? I mean, they couldn't oh, have assaulted sure. the Capitol. Uh, they were ready yeah, to so do it. That, they found the soft spots they knew, and in fact, that they were the ones that broke the windows, as the, as the video clips pointed out first, through which the mob was able to enter. And then they found other uh, soft spots as well. So, it's pretty clear that they were ready to go, and then Trumps provided the mob, mob by telling them to march on the Capitol.
1: Sure, exactly, and I think that's that's the thing. It's, it's what they knew, and it's what they understood. You know, the documentarian talked about this this moment where. Um, things kind of turned dark or the mood of the proud boys who with whom he was embedded turned dark. And I think it was that moment when they had already had a pre um, uh, you know, set of activities in front of them. And they were, they were turning to those activities at that point with a, with kind of a grim resolve to do, um, something more serious than just to, um, protest at the Capitol. And again, I think they, they read the moment, right in terms of what they could do with this, um, this larger group of people who had been whipped into a frenzy by uh, Trump, and not just on that day, but had been whipped into a frenzy, you know, over the course of, you know, two and you know, two plus months, I think, around this, and so that's that's the thing that's I think we really have to keep our eye on is that these different levels of kind of essentially coup activity and how they're connected together. You have this broad base of people who. Um, We're there to protest, but we're happy to riot. We're happy to charge the capital. You had a smaller group of people who were, um, you know, three percenters and Oath Keepers and Proud Boys who had been planning this tactically and strategically uh, for months. And then you had people, you know, uh, in and around Trump uh, who were um, depending on these forces below them, depending on these other aspects of it. They knew that they were not likely to be able to make a legal case. They had no uh, real confidence that Pence was gonna do what they wanted him to do. And so they had to be ready for uh, and hope that they could uh, really depend on on this activity at the Capitol to at least, at least bring the certification to a halt. What they plan to do after that is unclear.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Joseph Lowndes, who's a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and an expert on conservatism, social movements, the GOP, race, and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race in the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has an article at joe.lowndes.org. Enrico Tarrio's Winter Palace and an article at the Washington Post, the homegrown version of replacement theory adopted by the GOP. So let's talk a little bit about the Winter Palace in terms of Enrico Tario, who's the son of a Cuban immigrant who fled the Castro regime, and he was the one that you say repeatedly exhorted his comrades to storm the Winter Palace. So that's a little strange, is it not, coming from a right-wing militia guy borrowing a Bolshevik rallying cry.
1: Yeah, I, there's one thing that I, if there's one thing I would like to underscore about what the far right looks like on the ground is that it's an extraordinarily creative movement that um, is syncretic, which is kind of a fancy academic way of saying they they are able to kind of pick and choose from all kinds of um, you know, political ideologies and and forms of identification and aesthetics and style uh, to, um, you know, to create kind of an, an ever-growing far-right movement. I mean, the, the it's interesting, kind of ironic, kind of funny, kind of silly that uh, Tario would keep referring to Storming the Winter Palace. Part of that, I think, is just, like many Proud Boys you'll talk to there, it's just real ideological confusion, uh, you know, up and down the line. But also, you gotta think about this. Uh, this guy who grew up in Miami, you know, in a Cuban American community, always was known through most of his life as, as, as Henry Tarrio, not as Enrique Tarrio, uh, then becomes a leader in this movement. And partly what he underscores is uh, his Latinness and his blackness. He uh, is insistent uh, in referring to himself as an Afro-Cuban. Uh, so there's a way in which, and this I think has been a really a key thing for the Proud Boys, is they present themselves as kind of a multiracial far right. And they they want to invite and encourage recruitment from Latinx communities, from black communities, from Asian American communities, to build kind of a, um, you know, kind of a proto-fascist street movement that is not strictly white nationalist or white supremacist, uh, and in fact is uh, self-consciously multiracial.
0: So let's talk a little, though, about you mentioned in in your piece at uh, josephlounds.org that Carl Rittenhouse was on Tucker Carlson uh, last week discussing potential legal action against media and tech companies, and then he went on to whine about, if I can use Jared Kushner's word, uh, he was whining about the fact that he couldn't live a normal life. I cannot go out in public. I can't go to the store doing basic things like taking my dog to the dog park is difficult. So just to touch on Fox News, who ref- who refused to cover the hearings, what they did instead was they kept their audience completely sealed in the bubble of delusion that they maintained. And to do so, they didn't take any ads for the entire period that... Uh, Thursday's first hearing went on for what was two over two hours, so that was pretty extraordinary. That that they took a financial hit in order to keep their people watching their version of reality, which had nothing to do with what was happening on Capitol Hill. But they did have another screen. What was happening on Capitol Hill? And whenever anything in the hearing room touched on the brutality and showed the clips, for example, that the British documentarian had provided, they cut away from that. So they really are full-on Stalinist propagandists. These people—they're just unbelievable. So, do you think that they've succeeded in walling off the reality of what happened in that first hearing?
1: What I would say is they—they um, they succeeded in continuing the walling off. Uh, I think you know we have a, an increasingly polarized um, electorate and, uh, you know, people in this country who are, you know, on the, on the right are within, uh, you know, l- live in a, entirely within one framework of, of what the world is and how it works. And, you know, I, the, the narrative that gets spun there is such an alternate version of reality. It's either that January 6th was, you know, crisis actors from the left, uh, or, January 6th was something that was, um, uh, you know, an unfortunate protest that got a little bit out of hand, uh, or their, their most charitable version of it is that, well, you know, maybe these protesters were, um, uh, went a little too far, but weren't they just at the end of the day trying to save democracy? So this, you know, then they get not just, you know, these, these, under all circumstances, then it's either the riots didn't happen, uh, or that, um, uh, you know, they they become valorized, or the rioters themselves become valorized, and I think part of what that underscores here is that what we're really looking at is not just a coup attempt on January sixth, but an ongoing, slow-rolling coup attempt here, which I think you know stretches again from um, state uh, election. Um, administrations, you know, across state state legislatures are taking control of election administration to determine the outcomes of upcoming elections, uh, to, um, you know, that Trump's own social media platform where he continues to, to, you know, reproduce the big lie to, you know, still fairly intact and organized Proud Boy organizations or 3% organizations which are active on the ground in more local and decentralized ways since January 6th, but they're there, they're there. Uh, to Kyle Rittenhouse, who, uh, you know, was able to be acquitted uh, in criminal court and now sees the possibility of being redeemed in civil court as well. And it's something that may happen. And so what we have then is, as you say, Fox News, which is, um, you know, works as the as the Pravda of the the right and the far right, which then becomes, you know, the the um, the propaganda arm of, you know, this right wing coup attempt, which is, again, ongoing.
0: Right. They, In other words, January the 6th was a rehearsal. It, they came close. They almost pulled it off. But they have really laid the groundwork to pull it off in, in November elections and then in 2024, laying again the groundwork for a return of Trump. So, I, I want uh, to say this,
1: there's two things there that matter. I think one is it's not simply a rehearsal of that. It's if you can – if you imagine – uh, you know, alternate slates of electors being put forward, say, in 2024. I mean, I think we're going to see some of this in 2022 but, uh, or in the fall. Um, but alternate slates of electors being put forth by a House of Representatives controlled by the Republican Party, which will decide which electors they will choose. There's likely to be, you know, and hopefully there will be real resistance uh, coming from the left or coming from people who are committed to democracy, on the ground in state after state in all these places where there's potential stolen elections, real, you know, real coup attempts from the ground up. So you can think about the role of far right militias or paramilitaries or street gangs or individuals well armed uh, in, in relationship to those. You know, you seen we've seen already, um, you know, far right activity at uh uh, pro-choice rallies. We uh, saw, you know, the beginnings of this movement um, really on the streets in a serious way in the summer of 2020, where they went after Black Lives Matter activists in city after city after city, which is what where we get Kyle Rittenhouse. So I think, you know, we are looking at a situation where you've got this, you know, the the street version of this, you know, kind of like the SS version of this, which will be active all over the place to try to suppress democratic attempts to stop democratic seizure uh, or anti-democratic seizure from the top and so just i really just want to emphasize keeping these parts together because i think they really are they each has each have their role but each can be very serious if the if the left and forces of, of real democracy aren't um aren't prepared to to deal with this
0: and this week, the Supreme Court will consider whether to hear Moore versus Harper, the North Carolina case asserting that state legislatures have sole authority in all decisions of election procedure concerning federal elections in the states. So, just briefly, what's at stake there?
1: So, I think the court. It seems like people who are closer court watchers than I am seem to think the court will take this case, and uh, and will decide that state legislatures. Uh, have sole authority over election administration. The, the you know, the court's um, justification is going to be, you know, a federalist one that state legislatures, as as re- most representative of the people uh, in the states, have the um, have the legitimate right. authority and sovereignty to make these kinds of decisions. And the case itself was, you know, was generated by questions of gen- of gerrymandering. Uh, after the census, the 2020 census, but what it will, the the, the case will likely, decision will likely say that um, legislatures have power to decide all aspects of election administration. Which means not only that in places where the, where states have already seized that ability from um, independent election administration, uh, they um, can't be challenged by state courts or uh, they can't, you know, on, on the basis of state constitutions. There There's sure. not there's not even authority within the states to challenge what the state legislatures might do. So you have voter suppression on the one hand, which is bad enough, and this becomes something uh, even far more grave, I think.
0: Well, particularly since Trump has, again, laid the groundwork with running these rabid partisans for secretary of state positions, taking over cancelling boards, and having state legislatures decide whether they'll accept the results and and supplant them with their own results. So the Supreme Court might well, you know, open the door for that activity, isn't it? Give them a free hand.
1: Yeah, give them a free hand. I think that's, it seems like that's very likely to to happen.
0: Well, Joseph Lowndes, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Oh, thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Well, I wish we were talking about something um, a little more cheery, but this (laughs) is definitely a a (laughs) warning to people to to understand what the hell is happening to their country. And again, I've been speaking with Joseph Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and an expert on conservatism, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has an article at joelands.org, Enrico Tarrio's Winter Palace, and an article at the Washington Post, the homegrown version of replacement theory adopted by the GOP. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into what might emerge from the next hearing on Monday evening that will investigate Trump's seven-point plan for his coup against American democracy. Make- Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shane Burley, who's a writer and filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It and Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance and Surviving the Apocalypse. His work has appeared in Al Jazeera, The Baffler, Jacobin and In These Times and other publications. And he has an article at Real News, Abortion Funds, Telehealth Care, Biohack Medicines, Crisis Planning for Post-Roe America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shane Burley. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And the first of the hearings that the House Select Committee Investigating January 6th had on Thursday tried to make a case or tied in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers uh, to Trump's call for the mob to storm the Capitol. In other words... The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were kind of the pathfinders. They they reconnoitered the place early, starting at 10 a.m., found the weak spots, and then waited for Trump to mobilize the crowd, which they needed then to storm the Capitol. So on Monday, the hearing apparently is going to explore Trump's seven-point plan for the coup, which I imagine will deal with a lot of the pre-planning that went on in the Willard Hotel Room. so one thing that we do know is that the day before January the 6th Stephen Bannon on his uh, program said strap in I think he said buckle up or whatever all hell is going to break loose tomorrow so if you are tying together the Proud Boys uh, militia and their role and how they're connected to the planning that was going on in the White House do you think that's Bannon is a key here, or who would you consider to be a key link?
2: Yeah, I mean, the entire Trump movement infrastructure is a key link here. So, you know, the documentary filmmaker testimony showed that the Proud Boys engaged in a really coordinated action here. And they were responding to the demands by Trump, the public demands to come on January 6th. You know, we had the the tweet promising that it would be wild. and You had figures like Bannon who are allies with them saying the same thing. So they're getting instructions in that way. But they're doing it in a way where Trump and a lot of his allies can have plausible deniability, where, you know, he's putting up these demands, he's presenting a case for insurrection, presenting the election is stolen, but saying, hey, I'm not directly coordinating this, so I don't have to stay responsible for it. Similar to what he did with the uh, standby comments during the 2020 debates where he referenced the Proud Boys, and like he's done with a number of things. Um, And so I think even if you know, there wasn't a phone call made there. It's a very clear attempt to instruct a lot of the groups that are much more volatile, like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and knowingly do that. And we can see that a lot of the testimony of the Trump insiders, uh, that he was pushing to continue this, that he refused to intervene, that that was likely his intention.
0: But we know that Roger Stone had meetings with uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, Prior to January the 6th, and there was, a, I think, a couple of demonstrations, sort of rehearsals that went on that he was a part of. So could Roger Stone be the link between the Proud Boys and the White House and the and the Trump White House?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's entirely possible. I think the Trump strategy, particularly in the 2020 election, was to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So, you know, it's, it's calling Georgia to potentially try and push for falsified election results or it's obstructing Congress with this. I think what's happening is that there is sort of a message happening to different parts of Trump's base about different strategies. Maybe it's mobbing the Capitol. Maybe it's interfering with the secretaries of state. There's various messages that were sent out, um, I think, in an effort to really create a density of attacks on the election integrity and to see which one might actually work.
0: So just given the work that you've done, Shane Burley, in writing Fascism Today, what it is and how to end it and why we fight essays on fascism, resistance and surviving the apocalypse. Do you think that the Democrats and particularly Biden and I suppose the select committee as well, do you think they should frame this coup attempt as a fascist coup attempt, which to my mind it clearly was?
2: Yeah, I think it has enough in common with historic fascist coups, so to speak, um, that, yeah, I think that's a reasonable framing. We're talking about not just an attack on election integrity, but we're talking about the use of force. And the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and other groups and sort of the unaffiliated masses of Trump folks, that has enough in common with historic far-right paramilitaries that that seems to be kind of what's happening. And when we're coming up into the, the next election, the infrastructure, the infrastructural attack on our democratic systems have been so profound that this isn't the end of it. And I think people need to be concerned about what's happening uh, this year and in two years as these sorts of attacks could continue.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Shane Burley, writer and filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and Why We Fight Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. And his work has appeared in Al Jazeera, The Baffler, Jacobin, In These Times, and other publications. So... How do you do this then? Because I I don't, you know, it seems like the Republicans are fired up and Trump controls the GOP and, for example, Fox News literally sealed their viewers in the hermetic bubble of delusion throughout the, they didn't run the hearings, but what they did instead was had their alternative programming with Tucker Carlson and others, but, they didn't have any advertising, so they didn't want their viewers to to switch off and be contaminated by the truth. So it's an amazing what a resolute propaganda outfit they are. so they are, they have their gloves off, they're fired up. I don't see the Democrats really taking this argument to the American people in a, in a strong and assertive way by saying, "Look, this is a, th- these people are fascists. They're, this is what they did." It fits all definitions. They've laid the groundwork for a coup and for, a, for the, you know, you could argue that what happened on January the 6th was a rehearsal. They're going to get it right next time. They've laid the groundwork with voter suppression. They're going to create a one-party state. The hero is, is Orbán in Hungary. He's done that in Hungary. They made it clear. CPAC went there. Tucker Carlson went there. They're not disguising their admiration for autocratic Elections, and they're going to create one. So, you know, I don't understand why you would go into an election knowing that it's rigged against you. I don't understand why you'd go into, into a casino where there was no chance of winning anything. Why are the Democrats sleepwalking into this trap
2: I mean, they're simply not prepared for the level of volatility that we're actually walking into. We're talking about a 2024 election where a huge plurality of secretaries of state um, believe that the past election was uh, stolen and that they may perhaps interfere in this coming one. There's a lot of reasons to be really concerned about the next couple of election cycles. And the Democrats can take bold, decisive action to interfere on that, to say that there's such a profound attack that we have to start severing people who disbelieve um, the integrity of election results of people that are not gonna allow for a peaceful transfer of power in a democratic society. They would have to cut those people off, um, uh, basically kick those people out of authority seats. But what the rest of us can do is engaged in a social movement, not exactly like the Trump movement has, but in the size the Trump movement has. I mean, one of the realities around Democratic Party politics is that they have never been able to achieve big gains all on their own. They have to have social movements behind them. And that's the history of the labors movement, the women's movement, the LGBT movement. And that's what people are gonna have to do to protect democracy now. They're gonna have to kind of form large protest groups, uh, large community organizations, and hold not just the Republicans accountable, but the Democrats accountable for acting as the sharp edge of maintaining democracy. That's what's going to have to happen in the next couple of years, and it's going to require lots of people all across the country who are going to refuse to let the election be stolen.
0: Well, I guess to some extent we're seeing that over the weekend on Saturday, the demonstrations around the country in favor of of gun safety and doing something to stop the slaughter of innocent children. And there again, isn't that a powerful message, along with preserving democracy itself and you know, here we are, you know, we've been celebrating, the 4th of July, we've been celebrating, what, over 240 years of American democracy. This is something we celebrate and we tell the world that we're a leading democracy and yet we're being hollowed out before our own eyes and we're under. it's under attack. And I don't know that you can make a case about what we're going to do about inflation. I think if you go, if you go into that territory, the Republicans are going to win for sure and you know they're going to, pound that throughout the rest of this um, year so surely along with making the case that American democracy itself is at stake and we won't you won't like you the American people won't like living in a one-party totalitarian autocracy like Hungary with all you have to watch is Fox News and also add to that the reality that we are not free in this country, free from violence, free from fear. We can't send our children to school without the fear of them being slaughtered by some nutcase with an assault rifle. We can't go to church. We can't go to malls. There seems to be a lot of powerful arguments out there and I just don't see them being coalesced. I see the activity uh, which we saw over the weekend with people showing up to protest gun violence. But again i wish they all these messages could be tied into a narrative
2: yeah i mean what's happening right now is basically an insurrection a progressive insurrection against this lack of control over our lives the lack of democracy about our lack of safety from gun violence um, uh, uh, and at the same time, the falling real wages that a lot of workers are experiencing, the ongoing unemployment issues, uh, the attack on the kind of working people's assets and, and benefits and things like that. So there's a there's a lot of these things that interact together. And what it's going to require is for people to start to pin those ideas together, to figure out what electoral and practical solutions are and how they can plug in to be a part of that. And uh, it, frankly, when we're heading to election with the Republicans using things like inflation, which is sort of. Um, red herrings for what the issues are. It's going to require progressives and people on the left to have a really clear vision of what they want to get done and how it's going to actually affect working people. And that's a message that I think gets lost in the Democratic Party machine that's always looking to have as big a tent as possible. They lose the energy about what's actually affecting people and what they can do to actually initiate some change.
0: So is there a leadership vacuum, do you think? Or uh, there's certainly certainly a messaging vacuum, but What's your sense of what the catalyst that's, that's needed here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's certainly a leadership vacuum in that the party doesn't know how it wants to identify itself going forward. Is it going to be the party of labor? Is it going to be the party that focuses on minority rights and civil rights and things like that? Is it going to be a, a general centrist party that just doesn't do what the, the Republicans do? I think what we've seen over the last few years is the collapse of the center And the reality is that people want decisive action. And when they don't get it from the Democrats, they will look somewhere else. And so what the Democrats need to do if they actually want to be a winning party is they need to ally with organized labor. They need to ally with pro-choice groups. They need to make clear, decisive stands on issues and show material results. They have to do things that affect working people's lives. So if people are concerned about things like inflation, they can, for example, empower labor unions to bargain for better wages. They can raise the minimum wage. They can do things that affect working class people's lives, and they don't give in to the narrative being offered by the Republicans. Without really clear, decisive action that shows results, they have no leg to stand on.
0: But just in closing, do you think they can also borrow what Liz Cheney said on Thursday night, that the Republicans are trying to defend the indefensible, and Trump one day will go away, but the Republicans' dishonor will live on?
2: I mean, I think the party certainly has been tarnished, but they've also taken along their base with them. And so I think it's important for the Democrats, obviously, to maintain that they are the party of democracy, but they're going to have to give even more. They're going to have to speak to the crisis that a lot of people are living in. And in a way, that's what Republicans have done, is they've spoken in these kind of extra normal and revolutionary terms. And the Democrats are going to have to answer that, but with messages about climate change, with messages about working people's wages, things like that. That is how they're going to build it.
0: Right, and and tell us, for God's sake, we lost four years to deal with climate change under Trump in his first go-round, and if he comes back, it's the end of the goddamn planet. I mean, Absolutely. it's that yeah. s- simple and stark. I, I thank you uh, for joining us, uh, Shane Burley. I don't mean to rant, but r- very upsetting. I'm with you. Okay. Again, I've been speaking with Shane Burley, writer and filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of Fascism Today, What Is It and How to End It?, and Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. And his work has appeared in Al Jazeera, The Baffler, Jacobin, In These Times, and other publications. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at how Putin has claimed the mantle of Peter the Great and is calling on an historic quest to return and fortify Russians' lost land. So we'll be looking into whether we should be calling the war in Ukraine not a fight for democracy, but for sovereignty.
3: Well, I'm gonna tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You, fascists, bound to lose. Woo!
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of Tomorrow the World, the birth of U.S. global supremacy in World War II. And he has an article in The Atlantic, the one key word Biden needs to invoke on Ukraine. He should call it a fight not for democracy, but for sovereignty. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wurtheim.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: So you make this case in your article. Of course, we know that although the NATO countries in the UK, uh, Australia, Canada, a number of democracies around the world are appalled at what's happening in Ukraine and Putin's attack on this country and the continuing brutal bombardment of it, but It's almost like there's a different world out there in in the Global South. They're not upset about it. And you have essentially an explanation, I guess, in the sense that you're saying the assault on... Just to quote your article. The assault on Ukraine strikes at the core right of states to preserve their sovereign independence. This is an axiom that countries on all continents hold dear. Many nations in the Global South remember colonial rule and continue to fear great power exploitation. Even the government of India, which has drawn criticism in the West for opposing sanctions on Moscow and buying discounted Russian oil, has shown its disapproval of Putin's breaches of international law. So, is anybody at the White House listening to you, Stephen, in the sense that they should be focusing not so much on preserving democracy as preserving sovereignty?
4: Well, I think that the Biden administration has put forward both arguments, of course. Of course, it's um, a, a terrible feature of the war that Russia has so wantonly violated Ukraine's sovereignty, independence and territorial integrity. This has been a message the United States has put forward. But at the same time, I think what's happening in the in the White House, if I can take a guess, is that uh, the Biden administration had a pre-existing worldview, a pre-existing frame in which it sought to portray a struggle for democracy against autocracy in the world and rally democracies as the United States. So it slotted the war in Ukraine into that. And I think there's perhaps a lack of recognition that other countries around the world receive very differently an argument that they should support Ukraine's fight as a fight for democracy compared with uh, the proposition that they should support Ukraine's fight as a fight for sovereignty. The democracy argument uh, has a lot of liabilities uh, because uh, it, it almost suggests that, well, if Ukraine hadn't been a democracy in the eyes of the West, then perhaps there wouldn't be this extraordinary international or Western campaign uh, to support Ukraine. And many countries around the world aren't democracies or perhaps don't share Ukraine's features, uh, being a white European country that have made it uh, seem like a democracy, uh, like a bulwark of democracy, when in fact, of course, we all know that Ukraine's uh, uh, political status is, is much more Uh, complicated, which is one of the reasons why it wasn't under serious uh, consideration to, to be a NATO membership. So I think a lot of countries around the world hear this argument about democracy, and it makes them suspicious and wonder, do they really have a direct stake in this fight that would lead them to make sacrifices? Whereas if we made a case that was more forthrightly based in a defense of sovereignty, well, that's a right that countries around the world do have a strong stake in defending.
0: And one country that's always made a strong point out of sovereignty is China. So do you think China would be thinking differently if the focus was on sovereignty, not democracy?
4: Well, I think China has its own reasons uh, to be uh, officially neutral, but effectively uh, much more aligned with Russia. Uh, than with Ukraine uh, and the West in the war. So I don't think that would change. But I do think, you know, the United States should be in the business of making uh, China's and Russia's hypocrisy more apparent and more difficult for them. And so if the West were to stand more on the principle of defending sovereignty than of defending democracy then it would make uh, China's uh, twisted contortions to try to explain uh, its position uh, less appealing in, in more of the world. So I don't think we're doing ourselves uh, any favor uh, by emphasizing democracy, even if I think we have to be realistic that, uh, that uh, Beijing has uh, strong self-interested reasons for its strategic alignment, its entente uh, of a kind with Moscow at this point.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Wertheim as a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. And he has an article at The Atlantic, the one key word Biden needs to invoke on Ukraine. He should call it a fight not for democracy, but for sovereignty. Well, it's fairly clear that Russia signed on to the Budapest Agreement, uh, which respects sovereignty and territorial integrity vis-a-vis Ukraine at the time that the Soviet Union dissolved or thereafter when they made the agreement. Uh, And when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for sovereignty and territorial integrity. So that's all clear, but what about the residue of the hubris of the neocons who got us into the Iraq War, which wasn't sanctioned by the United Nations, compared to the work that Bush Sr. had done to prepare a coalition to invade Kuwait to take it back from Saddam Hussein. So there's a huge difference there, is there not?
4: Yeah, in the Persian Gulf War, uh, George H.W. Bush... Uh, had an essentially pro-sovereignty message. Uh, The world saw uh, Saddam Hussein's forces uh, mount a cross-border invasion into Kuwait. And uh, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, uh, rallied uh, an impressive array of countries, 35 countries, to join Uh, a UN coalition, at the time it had Soviet support, uh, to oust uh, Saddam's forces from Kuwait. And not only did the kind of pro-sovereignty framing of that mission uh, galvanize international support, um, but it also um, implied that the mission would have a finite and achievable objective, ejecting Iraqi forces not going on to Baghdad uh, to pursue a maximalist goal of regime change, as the second Bush ended up doing. Uh, So it certainly looks better in comparison to, to um, uh, to what George W. Bush attempted. Uh, and today, I'm, I'm sorry to say that in, in some ways, it's not that I think that the Biden administration is pursuing re- regime change against Vladimir Putin in Russia. Uh, I do not think that that is is an objective. But uh, by framing Ukraine's fight, you know, more in terms of democracy than in terms of sovereignty, um, it's it's a message that resembles, I think, to much of the world more the second Bush administration than the first. And remember that the second Bush administration, you know, not only was it not uh, trying to defend sovereignty uh, when it launched the 2003 invasion of Iraq, it was trampling on Iraqi sovereignty to mount an unjustified and illegal uh, invasion of the country in the name of spreading democracy. Uh, So that uh, that legacy remains uh, with people at home and abroad. Uh, and I think should only reinforce uh the wisdom of uh emphasizing uh our support for a sovereign government against the territorial aggression uh of of russia
0: and we all know how that one worked out right i mean in in effect, Iran was the only winner of the Iraq war
4: yeah and um and it was a maximalist goal and so when Biden says that the war in Ukraine is part of this larger battle for democracy against autocracy. You know, does what does that imply about how the conflict in Ukraine might end? Can it really end in a legitimate, satisfactory way in any other outcome than uh, some kind of a total victory for Ukraine and a total defeat for Russia? Um, It's it's hard to see. And it's, you know, implausible that Russia is going to be anything but an autocracy uh, for the foreseeable future. Sorry to say, even even if somehow there were regime change, which isn't likely either uh, that that does not equal democracy. Uh, So so I think the message that's sent is, you know, not just come join this coalition to beat back an act of aggression. And bring about uh, a restoration of peace. The message that many are getting around the world is instead, come join this kind of permanent geopolitical rivalry, uh, where we're going to continue to try to isolate and, and punish uh, Russia because there isn't much Russia can can do about the nature of Russia uh, as a non democracy, and that's not an appealing message for many around the world, especially as the. Uh, prices of fuel and food uh, skyrocket, uh, and we're going to see, I think, more difficulty in the global economy in the months, uh, in the in the in the months ahead. What they would like to see is uh, some kind of uh, relief and 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 stabilization and peace would be helpful, not in open-ended conflict.
0: So, in terms of making your argument and getting the Biden administration to focus more on the attack on Ukraine's sovereignty as opposed to defense of a frail, nascent democracy. It seems that Putin is is actually helping to make the case for sovereignty in the sense that on Thursday, in paying tribute to Tsar Peter the Great on the 350th anniversary of his birth, Putin made this speech uh, where he uh, said that he was on an historic quest to return and fortify uh, Russia's lost lands, and this has had the effect since he controls Russian media and and propaganda, and they've turned on a dime. Uh, where you know up until now it's always been that this has been a special military operation to free Ukraine from the Nazis and to stop at NATO enlargement. etc. that's been the line, but now the line is totally changed now into. You know, we have a sacred mission to ex- to uh, expand our lands. The former head of Russia's Russia's Duma's Defense Committee, who previously served as the Deputy Defense Minister, Andrei Karatapolov, he said on on state TV, agreeing with Putin, saying, "Yes, we will restore and fortify. The world has changed." The period of American colonialism has come to an end, and we'll and will never return. In this new world, Russia will be the power, the moral compass, the landmark of purity, truth, and correctness to which sensible people will flock from all over the planet. So, uh, does that concern you that we may have a delusional dictator whose health is questionable,
4: and also uh, has. Uh possession of more nuclear warheads than any other country on earth. Uh, Sure, it concerns me, um, though I don't want to overstate the risk of nuclear conflict. Um, But you know, I think hopefully statements like the one that you've mentioned um, suggest an opportunity for the Biden administration. The administration is understandably concerned whether it can maintain um, the coalition it has assembled. Uh, given the mounting social and economic costs um, on populations across the West. And it should want to try to expand that coalition if it can. And the more, uh, naked, uh, the more nakedly Russian leaders come out in favor of this kind of colonialist, um, irredentist mission, uh, the more able uh, the West should be to exploit that fact. Uh, and make a case that um, the legitimate way to conduct oneself in the international system is through a respect for other countries' uh, recognized sovereignty and territorial integrity and independence. And So, again, I think that's further uh, perhaps uh, provides—we have a convergence at this moment of various features that um, perhaps would make it possible for the administration to— Um, to try a message that would expand the coalition through attraction, uh, not compulsion. Uh, And, you know, I don't think that the democracy argument needs to go away completely. It is something that understandably motivates uh, many people in the United States uh, and in the democratic world. But I think if it could upgrade its support for for sovereignty and what I think is truly a rules-based order— Uh, then we might have more success putting the coalition on a more durable foundation as we go forward.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, Stephen, I don't know whether you're a betting man, but I'm going to ask you a betting question. Do you think that the coalition can stay together and sustain Ukraine? Ukraine is suffering substantial casualties, we're learning. Uh, because if you're on the offensive, you usually lose more men than you are on the defensive. And we know that the Russians lost an awful lot uh, in their initial attacks when the Ukrainians were on the defensive. Uh, but now, it, you know, even reports that the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. So that's a little shaky, that sit whole situation. And of course, at the price of gas is uh, driving inflation. But... Putin is may be suffering on the battlefield, but he's not suffering so much internationally because he's able to sell oil now at a, at a hugely more profitable price. Um, money's pouring in. He's still getting what a, a billion a day from Western Europe for gas, and at least more than a billion a day from uh, India and other markets. So. And he's got this de facto alliance with uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed. And uh, on Saturday, Biden was asked about going to Saudi Arabia hat in hand to try to beg him to uh, turn on the spigot. And he said, well, that's not that, that deal's not done yet, or the, or the arrangement's not made yet. So there seems to be two possibilities here. Either Putin will run out of steam and have to accept some kind of a compromise in Ukraine, if the coalition holds together, or Putin, MBS, and MBZ with with oil money, with apparently a determination to help bring back Trump, uh, which uh, maybe the down payments of two billion to Jared Kushner and a billion to Mnuchin are indication of that. So, how do you see these two scenarios uh, working out in the near future?
4: It's really difficult to predict. Um either side of the equation, the Western side or the Russian side, how do things look in a year from now on either of those sides? And that's part of the reason why I think we're not seeing much, uh, much progress toward uh, negotiations, because each side can imagine that the other side will have more difficulty sustaining its effort over time uh, than one's own side. That said, you know, I think regardless of kind of who's going to come out with the advantage over the next six months or 12 months, um, the task will become more difficult uh, for Americans at home and for the Western coalition. We're going to go into winter, uh, and that uh, will—we'll see if it'll make a big difference, actually, whether it's a warm winter or a cold winter in Europe in particular. But unless we change tack, uh, then you know, there doesn't seem to be any prospect of the coalition in support of Ukraine growing, but only shrinking. So I think this ought to be a moment to uh, to think creatively about if there's some other way that international support might grow uh, for Ukraine's side. I also think that I think we face a real risk that there's been an underestimation of. Russian capabilities, given the initially botched performance of the Russian military and the heroic resistance of Ukraine. Uh, The Russian uh, forces have made significant gains in eastern Ukraine uh, over the past month. And so I think it's going to be a difficult process to try to determine what is the best, most realistic uh, path forward for Ukraine. but. One thing that we'd want to avoid is uh, being in no better position in in five years and having only seen destruction in Ukraine uh, and all kinds of uh, disruption around the world. uh, If we're not going to be more successful through further bloodshed, then uh, then I I hope uh, people in Ukraine and in the coalition supporting Ukraine will... Um, we'll have some difficult conversations and try to assess uh, what the best way forward is.
0: Well, Stephen Wertheim, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, And he has an article at The Atlantic, the one key word Biden needs to invoke on Ukraine. He should call it a fight not for democracy, but for sovereignty. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org